As we get started, let's go to God in prayer. Father, you are good. You are the God who comes to our rescue, our ever-present help in trouble. God, tonight we lay before you uh, this time together. God, open up your word to us. May your spirit just have complete reign and control in us, and may we learn from you. It's in Christ's name. Well, do you remember as a kid, or maybe even if you're a parent now, do you just kind of know how parents seem to have this innate ability within them to dodge the questions of their kids, right? I mean, they just, they have many different methods, but they all have this just innate ability, extremely successful to dodge the questions of their kids. My mom had one method she really liked, and actually my wife has kind of picked up on the same one, and I'm not a big fan of it. It is the, just go ahead and ask your father excuse, right? Maybe you've heard that one before. It is one that I hated it when I heard that because I would usually, when I wanted something as a kid, go to my mom because my mom was the softy. My mom was the easier one to get the yes from. And I knew if I just kind of gave her a sad face, maybe if I pouted a little bit, added a tear, pinched myself, made the tear come, whatever it was, I knew that mom would probably give me the yes. But if mom looked at me and said, why don't you go ahead and ask your father? It was over. I mean, forget it, right? I mean, I don't think I ever went and asked my father. Now, my wife has picked up on this, and she has taken this to a new level. What, what Lisa will do is I will now, I will be in the room with her. I will sometimes be seated right next to her, and one of my boys will come in, and they will ask her a question, and she'll say, why don't you go ahead and ask your father? And I can hear an agonizing groan come from my boys. While they are groaning, I will look over at Lisa and not say anything, but give her this, are you serious? I mean, I'm right here. My boys will groan. They know that it's over. Lisa thinks this is a good system. In fact, she's told me we have this thing kind of worked out. She is the good cop. I am the bad cop. I don't ever remember agreeing to this setup, but she promises me it works really well. At least it works really well for her, okay? Now, another one of my favorites growing up, and I'm guilty of using this as a dad, is the maybe answer, right? I'm not sure what your family was like growing up, But if you asked your parents a question and they gave you a maybe answer, forget it. It was not happening. If I asked my parents maybe, then I wasn't going to ask again because maybe really meant no. It's the ultimate stall tactic. And I use it, and I use it frequently with my boys. But I think my boys are smarter than I was. In fact, I'm pretty sure they are. My youngest, James, He is still four. He's almost five, but he's a four-year-old kid, and he hates getting anything but yes for an answer. So he has kind of altered the question. What he will do, he won't ask a question that really can result in a maybe answer. What he will do is he'll do this. He'll say, Daddy, can we one day get a? Daddy, can we one day go to the one day? That is his kind of, kind of tweak to this question because he knows if he says one day, then I'll just tell him yes because it'll probably just go away. But 
in the ultimate battle of wits between a parent and a four-year-old, I've taken this to the next step. What I do now with James, and this happened last fall, for instance, we were at Target, and I hate this. I hate the checkout, because at the checkout, you have candy and gum that is way overpriced, but what you also have, and my boys love this, they have these cheap, and by cheap, I mean really disposable toys, toys that break on the way home, but they have these cheap toys that are anything but inexpensive, and James was there this day at Target, and he looked at this toy, and he said, Daddy, can I one day have this toy? I have the perfect response. If you're a parent, especially a dad, feel free to go ahead and use this. I looked at James, and in my best mafia voice, I said, yes, one day we can get that toy. That day is not today. (laughs) It seemed to work. But perhaps the oldest parenting line in the book is the infamous, and I think we all heard this at one time or another, the infamous, son, this is going to hurt me a whole lot worse than it's going to hurt you. Now, even as a kid, even being five or six years old, quite frankly, I realized that's a lie. Because I thought usually when that was said, what followed was me crying and my parents not. And I thought, if it really hurt you a whole lot more than it hurt me, then, man, you should be throwing a fit, right? I mean, I'm, lo- I mean, I'm crying. You're smiling, walking. I mean, shouldn't this, if it really hurt you more than it hurt me, shouldn't that kind of be the response? Never seemed to work out that way. This is going to hurt me a whole lot worse than it's going to hurt you. Tonight, we're continuing on in the series we've been in the past few weeks called God, I Don't Like This. What we've been doing is taking an honest look at the uncertainty and the difficulties that we face in life and really how we respond to them. We've been looking at the prophet Habakkuk. If you've been here, you've seen how we've kind of looked at him and how he approached the struggles that he faced in life. And really what he did, he was really open and honest with God. He told God a lot of times, here's what's going on. I don't like it. And quite frankly, he would tell God, God, I really don't like your answer. I really don't like your response. I really don't like all that comes with us or all that comes with it. And the place that we've landed is that that's fair. That's that's a fine place to be. It's okay to go to God and tell him you don't like whatever you face. Maybe you don't like what he's called you to. Maybe you don't like his answer. God's a big boy. He can handle it. Well, tonight, we're going to take this a step further. In the pain and the suffering and maybe the uncertainty that we face in times, at times in life, what we're going to see tonight is that even though, even though God has a plan, even though God can use our current difficulty in ways that we could never anticipate, That God does indeed, Scripture is true, God does indeed work all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That even though all those things are true, that God sometimes, God many times, doesn't like what we're going through either. That the pain and the hurt that brings us to tears, many times brings him to tears 
too. And what I think God wants us to see tonight is that we can be encouraged and we can be hopeful because we don't walk alone in whatever comes our way. God is with us. He hurts with us. He is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The story we're going to look at tonight is in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 11. If you brought your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, we'll throw it up on the screen for you. It's a story that I think almost all of us know. It's basically the story of Lazarus. We are very familiar with this story, right? I mean, even if you didn't grow up in church, if today is the first time that you've walked into a church setting, you've probably heard of Lazarus. It's a very familiar story, maybe even too familiar. So tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to do this. Let's kind of all agree to maybe try to do this. Let's look at this story again, maybe with some kind of fresh eyes, and try to see the story as it unfolds. Don't let your mind race to the end. Try to, try to kind of put that off. And I think if you do that, tonight you're going to see something that maybe you've never seen before in the story. It's a great story. Let's look at it. It starts in John chapter 11 in verse 1. Here's how it reads. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. A lot of Marys in the Bible. So John tells us this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So basically, here's what the first three verses do. It sets up the whole story for us. Jesus basically has these three friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You'd think everyone at this time would be a friend of Jesus, but these three were kind of extra special to him. Jesus had a close relationship with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. In fact, he spent probably more time with them than he did anyone else save his disciples. Jesus was a traveling teacher. He would travel around, and whenever he would be in Bethany in this area, Mary and Martha and Lazarus would welcome Jesus into their house. He would stay there, spend numerous nights there. They'd take him in. They'd feed him. They'd care for him. I mean, these three spent a lot of time with Jesus, and they really did like each other. They loved being together. So, of course, the sisters send word to Jesus when Lazarus gets sick. They knew that Jesus would want to know about his friend. Of course, unlike a lot of our friendships, they also thought Jesus would come, make a house call, and immediately heal Lazarus. It's kind of a perk of having Jesus as your friend. So the setting is simple. Lazarus is sick. His sisters are concerned so they send word to Jesus, the cl their close friend. Look at what happens next. It says in John 4, it says, When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now this next verse is key. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he dropped everything he was doing, rented a camel, went to Lazarus' house, and healed him. Does your Bible say, doesn't say that, right? That's what you would expect. I mean, after all, he loves him. He would do something about it. Instead, it reads, Jesus, who loved Lazarus, when he heard he was sick, stayed where he was two more days. Doesn't really make sense, does it? Do you ever feel 
ignored by God. Do you ever feel like Jesus really doesn't care about what you're going through? I mean, you may never say that, but come on, have you ever felt that Jesus really doesn't care? I mean, after all, if Jesus really cared, if he was really you know, caring and loving and kind and cared about what you were going through, certainly he would do something about it and he would do something about it now, right? I mean, he is able. He is the all-powerful creator of the universe. I mean, he simply speaks a word and things that never existed suddenly exist. He heals the sick He sets the captives free. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And the Bible tells us time and time again, he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. Yet aren't there times when you doubt that? Maybe even a little bit? Or at least question it. Do you ever feel ignored by God? Here in this story, Lazarus is really sick. He is on death's door. Time here is of the essence. His sisters have sent word to Jesus, come Jesus, help us Jesus. Jesus, please hurry. The one you love is dying. And Jesus seemingly ignores the request of some of his closest friends. Seemingly ignores. Because as we've seen in the past few weeks and what we're gonna see tonight is that we can never assume that what we see is all there is to see. We can never assume that God's silence must also equate to God being still. As many of us in this room have experienced, and as Mary and Martha will in this story, Jesus has a plan. Jesus is on the move. He just has a different clock. So rest assured, who we are is not who we will be. Where we are is not where we will be, even though at the moment there may be no evidence whatsoever of God moving on your behalf. Story continues. Jesus stays, and then he says this. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And this next part is, seems kind of crazy, but we've all done this. We've all been at places in our life where God calls us to something, God tells us to do something, and we think, eh, I don't think that's quite right. I don't think that's really the best thing to do. And we kind of argue with God. We try to tell God, but God, if I do that, then that means this, so I really shouldn't do that. We think we know a little something that God doesn't know. The disciples are the same way, but Rabbi, they said, maybe you've forgotten a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. This is a rather bizarre part of the story. Lazarus, again, is seemingly forgotten. Major crisis, guy dying, and the world just keeps spinning. The disciples and Jesus kind of seem to get off track a little bit because they start discussing 
travel plans and light and darkness and spiritual truths that seem to have nothing whatsoever to do about Lazarus. And if you could go back in time 2,000 years, you'd love to interject here on Lazarus' behalf and kind of clear your throat and say, "Mm, what about Lazarus? Can we get back to Lazarus? Thankfully, Jesus does that for us. Look at what happens next. It says, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, and this is great, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. John, wanting to key us in, says, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Isn't it encouraging to you? Because it is to me that for the most important three to three and a half year time period in the history of the world, that when God himself would come to earth and stage the greatest rescue mission the world has ever seen, that he didn't really choose the best and brightest men to help him? I mean, that gives me hope. I mean, look again at the disciples. They just don't get it, and they rarely do. I mean, in this story, we see them as the most linear-thinking men on the face of the earth. Figurative thinking is way beyond them. I mean, if these guys could travel here today, and if they were here tonight, and they would leave here, I don't know, go see the Avengers, they would leave the movie, and they'd kind of nudge each other and say, could happen, you know? World's kind of reaching you know, an apocalyptic time. Iron Man, hammer-wielding Thor, big green giant hawk. It could happen. They could, they, they could save the day. I mean, these guys just don't get it. Gives me hope. Jesus probably rubbing his eyes and shaking his head. Look at what he says next. It says, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, also known as Doubting Thomas, says something amazing, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, continue to look at at this passage because this is a pivotal, this is the pivotal moment in our story. And it's subtle, but it's there. One of the most important parts of understanding this story is understanding when it took place. Most scholars agree this was immediately before, most say about two weeks before the crucifixion. So all this is going on, and this is in the back, a lot of times in the front of Jesus' mind. He knows what is coming. And the news of a close friend dying hits Jesus especially hard. Jesus, don't forget, is fully human. So in this story, he is fully frustrated. He is agitated. He is feeling burdened because he hates death. Death was never part of the plan. Death is the realm of the enemy. Death wreaks havoc and brings heartache and pain and confusion and suffering. And it's around times like that that we cry out to God, God, I don't like this. And what I want us to hear tonight is that in these same moments, Jesus cries out the same 
thing. I don't like it either. But listen, with determination in his voice, Jesus also says, death is not the final word. I'll even bring good from this, and I'm going to be glorified. And listen, it's not just death. The pain and confusion and suffering that we experience during times of uncertainty, whatever kind of faces us in life, during those times, we find Jesus is right there with us, walking with us, suffering with us, weeping with us. We serve, a, we serve a Savior who Scripture says is familiar with sorrow and acquainted with grief. So when you look here at verse 14, and it says, Jesus told them plainly, what I need you to see there is see Jesus as frustrated, as aggravated, not so much at the disciples, but at the suffering itself. Jesus doesn't like it when you suffer, but he will use it for his glory. Suffering doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. Story goes on, verse 17. Look at what takes place next. It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed back at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I remember when I was a kid, we lived out of town from my grandparents, and whenever they would come for a visit, I would get really excited, I suppose to see them, but I was really excited at the gifts that they would bring with them. And when I knew they were coming, and about what time, every time I heard a car drive past our house, I would race to the door, I would race to the window 10 or 20 or 30 times, hoping, expecting to see my grandparents pulling in the driveway. And finally, one of those cars would be them. I was filled with excitement and hope and expectation. And that's really where Martha has been over the past week in this story. Her brother was sick. She had sent word to Jesus, and she just knew. She just knew that Jesus would come and heal her brother. I mean, she would go, and she would tell her friends who would come by, and they would look at Lazarus, and they would talk about him, and they would pray for him, and she'd say, I know it looks bad. I know it seems hopeless, but Jesus is coming. Jesus is not going to let us down. This is his friend. I know he's coming. Every time a group would kind of pass by her house, they'd walk down the street. She'd race to the door and think, it's got to be Jesus. It's and it just wasn't. Time and time again, she was disappointed. Finally, he shows up. Only now it's too late. Still, she runs out to meet him. And in a state of shock, she poured out her heart and looked at Jesus and said, if you only would have come. Jesus, where were Jesus, why didn't you? And I think there's a pause before the next verse. Because I love how Jesus did not ridicule her for her questions, for her confusion. He understood her feelings. After all, I think she was right. You should expect Jesus to answer when you call. He tells us to do so, doesn't he? So he listens to Martha in her pain and confusion, and he waits. 
she gathers herself and with amazing faith says this. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Just kind of stare at those words. What a beautiful expression of faith. Her brother's been dead four days. He's in a tomb. And she says, I know it makes no sense, but I've seen too much to doubt you, Jesus. I'm all in. I'm just going with Jesus. Look at how Jesus responds. It says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And here it is. Do you believe this? There will come a moment in your struggle in your trial, in your uncertainty, your difficulty, or your difficulty, your waiting, in your doubts, when Jesus is going to ask you this question. Do you believe? Do you still believe? This is the question. Do you believe? And this moment is the right one for him to ask it. Because belief is easy when the sun comes up and the warm breezes blow, when everything is all right. But the true test comes when we are confused by God, when you are disappointed with him, when you scream out to God, God, I don't like this. This is not at all what I expected. I took a stand on my faith. My coworkers, my neighbors, even people in my family told me I was crazy to trust you, but I did it anyway, and you have let me down. God, I don't like this. Some of you have been there. Maybe some of you have been having those conversations with God even this week. And Jesus, because he loves you, because he wants what is best for you, and even though it's nearly just impossible for us to see his rationale or his plan in all of this, whispers to you in that moment, do you believe? In this trial, do you trust me? And oh, the peace that comes with your answer. Watch what takes place next. Jesus asks Martha Martha this question in the midst of her pain, and she replies, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. It's beautiful. In that moment, with her brother dead in a tomb, Jesus had not seemingly made it in time, but even in that moment, she says, even though I don't understand it all, I still believe. Even though it doesn't make sense to me, I still trust you. And a peace that she has not felt in a long time suddenly just rushes and washes over her. Martha has peace 
She trusts Jesus, even though she was disappointed by him, and she immediately wants her sister to have the same peace. Look at what takes place next. It says, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Watch Mary. When she reaches the place where Jesus was in solemn, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's Mary's turn now. Mary is emotionally, physically, spiritually weak at this moment. If you know much about Mary and Martha, Martha is the more contemplative one. She's more of a contemplative thinker. And Mary, the the feelings are right at the surface. She is a feeler. She's much more in touch with her emotions. And when Jesus first comes, if you notice in the story, Mary is too hurt to even go to him. And that's okay with Jesus. She suffered. She is suffering. Jesus knows her personality. Mary feels a little betrayed by Jesus. She's wrought with emotion over the death of her brother and the disappointment that came with it. So she stews a little bit when Jesus first shows up. But in classic Mary fashion, once she hears that Jesus wants to talk with her, she drops everything she's doing and runs to him. Jesus takes the first step, and Mary, in a dead sprint, just goes right after Jesus. She runs to him, and maybe panting, maybe out of breath, she falls at his feet. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus. You can just kind of feel the emotion in all of this. And with tears running down her cheek, she says the same exact thing her sister said, Lord, if you'd only come sooner. Jesus, if... Jesus, if you would have, if you could have, if you would have been here, if, if, if. Now, most of us know how the story ends, right? Jesus even told us earlier in the story that Lazarus was going to live. He was going to take care of this. But I think every time we've read the story, we see the climax of the story of Lazarus walking out of the tomb right? It's, it's the big moment. It's the climax of the story. But I'd like you to see it differently tonight. Jesus had done many miracles before this one. Jesus had even raised people from the dead before Lazarus. So he was really treading no new ground here with this one. So really, unless you're Lazarus, this is not the climax of the story. There's really nothing here more than just kind of tying up the loose ends when Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Instead, the climax of the story, the big idea, what I think God wants us to see tonight is what happens next. Picture it with Mary weeping at the feet of Jesus, full of confusion and disappointment. Watch what Jesus does. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. Better translation would be agitated, outraged, indignant. He was deeply indignant 
and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And here it is. Here is, I believe, the point of the story. Jesus wept. Do you see Jesus? Six or seven days ago, word came to him that one of his best friends was really sick. And he knew that he had the power with just a word to heal him, to make him well. Instead, that wasn't the plan. Jesus knew how this whole week would play out, and he didn't like it. Two of his closest friends were going to spend a few days watching their brother suffer and die, all the while waiting for Jesus to come in and save the day, something he had done numerous times before, but not this time. Not yet, anyway. And now Jesus has seen these close friends face to face. He has heard and seen their heartache and tears and disappointment, and he hurt too. Jesus, fully God and fully man, wept. It's kind of a preview of the garden. There, Jesus prayed and wept, knowing the perfect plan was for him to go to the cross for us. But he didn't like it. There, he prayed to the Father, asking if there's any other way to accomplish this, any other way. There wasn't. But we're not there yet. Today, in this story, maybe two weeks before Jesus goes to the cross, he's at the tomb of one of his closest friends. And he weeps. Like how one version said it. One version said, he burst into tears. Now you know how the story ends. Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. I like what Augustine said, one of the early church fathers. He said, Jesus had to call Lazarus by name because if he didn't, all the tombs would have emptied, right? I'm out. Just one time, I'm out, right? But he called Lazarus by name. That's just the power of Jesus. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. He's brought back to life. All is well again. There's a party like they had never had before. But that's not the point. In this story, I think more than the power of Jesus, what we see is a lot more about how Jesus loves us. How when we face times that find us crying out to God in disappointment and hurt, what we find in Jesus is a Savior and a friend who mourns and grieves and weeps along with us. But what we also see is that the mourning is going to be turned into dancing. That the final word in the story is not tears, but joy. If, if you believe. Do you believe? Listen, God doesn't like what you're going through many times any more than you do. He's suffering with you. He's weeping with you. 
But know this, the story's not finished. Not yet. It ends in joy. Let's pray. Father, you're good. Jesus, you, you love us. You walk with us. You care for us. God, you promise that you'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. And the truth of the matter is, I think you told us that because there are times when we feel like you've left us and we feel like you've forsaken us. But God, we see that it's not true. We see that in the pain, in the heartache, in the confusion, that you hurt with us. That you love us. And Jesus, even though, like in this story here, you could have just raced to the ending But healing wasn't the first thing on your mind. First thing on your mind was to grieve and to weep and to mourn and to care. God, help us realize that we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother, that we have one who knows the sorrows and the heartaches that we feel, and that you weep and you mourn and you grieve with us, that you hate death even more than we do. You hate the suffering even more than we do. But Lord, you don't weep because the suffering wins. You weep because you care, and you bring joy in the morning. You bring dancing after morning. Carry us through. Help us to rest in you. Help us to believe. In Christ's name.